The Good GP podcast is excited to have MedTech Global as a sponsor. MedTech is on a mission to digitally transform general practice so GPs can focus on quality patient care. For more information about MedTech Global, visit medtechglobal.com. You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. I'm one of your hosts, Christina Delange, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands upon which this podcast is being recorded. Today's recording is on the lands of the Yagara and the Pangarang people. I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Now, on today's podcast episode, we are delving into the topic of polypharmacy. And to help me with that, I am joined by Deborah Hawthorne, who is a rural-based clinical pharmacist in Northeast Victoria. Deb, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on The Good GP. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, Deb, you mentioned that your husband is a GP and you are a pharmacist. So you have this like great insight into how these professions can complement each other well. And you're super passionate about medication safety in primary care. So it is great to have you on the pod. I did want to give you a little shout out too, because you actually slid into our emails a little while ago with some topic suggestions. And we love that. I just wanted to take this opportunity to encourage any of our listeners who um, might be playing along from home, who have some topic suggestions or some ideas or some challenges that they see in their clinical practice that they'd love to hear an episode on, please get in touch with us. You can reach out to us via email, thegoodgp at gmail.com. We are wrapping up for 2023 and planning content for next year, which is crazy. I can't believe another year is over, but that's where we're at. And so we would love to hear from you. Please reach out. Now, Deb, we're going to get into this episode. Um, Just so we are all on the same page, can you start off by telling us what is polypharmacy and what patient groups do you commonly see impacted by this? Yeah, sure. So polypharmacy has different definitions all over the world, but I think the most recognised Australian definition is someone who's taking five or more medications regularly. And then there's also the term ultra polypharmacy, which means nine or more medications. Their figure, so the five medications, whether that relates to only prescription medications or can include over-the-counter medicines, traditional medicines, supplements, that type of thing, can be a bit contentious. But in my area of practice, I like to count them all. So polypharmacy is more and more common in older adults, generally because they often have several chronic diseases at the one time and they require management with multiple medications. However, you don't need to be over 65 to be on five or more medications, as we know. So so really any chronic disease that we see, quite often we see five or more medications in um, pretty much all the common chronic diseases that I can think of off the top of my head. So thinking, I was just looking up some stats before popping on the show. So over half the medications dispensed under the PBS, so not private medications, all the government funded ones in 2020 to 2021 were Australians aged over 65. So when I um, refer to old Australians, probably like you guys, we mean oldest aged over 65. And about 40% of people aged over 75 experience polypharmacy. And so they're taking five or more medications. Yeah, it's a lot. And it's something can certainly feel overwhelming, especially when we start out in general practice, I think. And you see this, like maybe these inherited patients and they come pre-made with all of this huge medication list and you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on here? So it can, you know, it's, it can be a real massive challenge for us as GPs. So when though does polypharmacy actually become a problem, I suppose? And what are the kinds of risks that we see with polypharmacy? So over the span 
of our lifetimes, people accumulate various diagnoses, receive different treatments over time, but it's not as simple as setting a medication and forgetting, as we know, if only it was that simple. All our lives would be a lot easier, but it's not. Our bodies change, medication needs change, and evidence for different medications change. So those diagnostic thresholds change. Um, People can also either improve or have changes to their lifestyle, so become healthier, less healthier. You know, once they retire, they might take up bike riding and they're no longer, you know, sitting at their desk every day. And also things that were important to them, you know, 20 years ago might not be now. And all these things do contribute to polypharmacy. So on the other hand, there's also people who are on multiple medications and then as they age, their bodies start to not work as well. You know, they start having renal issues, medications that were once absorbed one way are no longer absorbed as effectively as they were. And, you know, there's lots and lots of evidence out there to show that side effects for particular medications that may not have affected people earlier on in life can actually start to happen later on in life and and those side effects can get worse. And then, of course, when we combine them with lots of different medications in polypharmacy, that just compounds the issue. So polypharmacy increases the treatment burden. It also increases things like drug interaction, increases things like side effects, medication errors from, you know, really complex regimes, like three times a day dosing, four times a day, puffers, creams, tablets, you know, the whole, the whole lot as well as, you know, polypharmacy costs a lot. Medications do cost a lot and can impact on people's quality of life in different ways. So there's a bit of research out there that says polypharmacy can also impact on people's cognition negatively and help related quality of life as well as mortality. So really big statements there. So what can happen sometimes with polypharmacy is you might start off with one medication and they're totally fine. And then you either increase the dose of that medication or perhaps you add on another medication with a similar side effect profile and those sort of side effects combine or sometimes set each other off and, you know, create this sort of side effect cascade, if you will. So if we just take a step back here, I also um, think this is a really good time to just say that polypharmacy is not necessarily inappropriate. So not all polypharmacy is inappropriate. Polypharmacy is just considered to no longer be suitable when the potential harms outweighs the potential benefits or no longer aligns with the patient's values. So when I say that, you know, I do lots of home medication reviews all over Northeast and some of the most common comments I get when I go into someone's home is I feel like I'm rattling or I don't want to eat breakfast after my 10 tablets or simply is there a medication that I can stop? So that's what I'm talking about where it's just you know, it's impacting and the patient might not even recognize it, recognize that it's impacting on their quality of life, but they are obviously concerned enough to bring it up with me. Yeah. And I imagine in that setting, potentially impacting on compliance with medications, because if they're on so many and they're sort of getting sick of that, feeling like they're having to swallow down, you know, 10 different tablets or feel like they're rattling after yep. they might just, oh, I'll just forget about that blue and white one today, or, you know, I'll just skip yeah. that one. I don't think I really, you know, and so then that can kind of lead into non-compliance and then they come back and their blood pressure isn't as great. So we want to add another thing, another thing, all of a sudden add another thing in it and it all just can. Yeah, I was just going to say, you get a really good example of blood pressure management, but I find that a lot as well with puffers and 
especially the things like COPD, that people aren't using their puffers correctly or they've got two or three puffers and it's just, you know, it's intense for them and they think, oh, I'll take this puffer now. Or, oh, and, and there's all these confusions and all these issues that creep in and, and they get confused which one's the reliever and the preventer and it just, yeah, one thing leads to the next and compliance really suffers and, and their health yeah. suffers as a result. Yeah, so I think it's trickier than we really give the topic credit for, isn't it, Deb? And, you know, I want to talk about potential strategies, I guess, that we could employ to reduce polypharmacy, but it is that balance between, well, sometimes we do need these medications, but, you know, when can we actually, you know, reduce it? When can we start to deprescribe? So what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think GPs have one of the most integral roles when it comes to polypharmacy because you guys are the, the coordinators of a patient's care. And you have to interpret medications coming from that are being prescribed, not just by, by yourselves, but at all the different transitions of care, which is quite common with people with multiple chronic diseases or even a singular chronic disease. So medications really should be reviewed regularly and regularly will depend on the person and, and your practice, obviously, and also what's appropriate for the individual at that period of their life. And again, is consistent with their care goals. So I realise that as a pharmacist who goes to visit people in their homes to do a medication review and look at their medication in their entirety, it's probably not quite as realistic as what a GP would face in day-to-day practice. But that's, you know, a really great example of where a pharmacist can fit in the team care goals. However, you know, if, if a GP was afforded the same luxury, I guess the first step I tend to always take is to look at the medication list in its entirety. You know, quite often you're you know, someone comes in with an issue that needs to be fixed and you don't always get that, again, luxury to sit back and sort of look at everything rather than look at each medication individually. So that they're both important. So looking at everything together and individual. And so every time I look at someone's medication regime, I go in with an open mind to the possibility of deprescribing. And quite often that is the patient's goal. More often, like probably about 90% of the time I go into people's homes, they're like, oh, can I take less medication? I'm like, look, let's have a look, you know. And so professionally, it's actually one of the most uh, rewarding parts of my practice, helping someone simplify their regime and just, you know, add quality to their life in terms of their medication management. And so the act of removing or decreasing a medication are both forms of deprescribing. So deprescribing, it's not just stopping a medication. It could be reducing the strength, reducing the frequency or the dosing interval. It could be changing a medication from regular use to when required. It can also be looking for, and I know saying it out loud, it sounds really simple, but sometimes we get so focused on what the patient's goals are at that particular time, we don't always think about it. So things like looking at a combination tablet, you know, we're quite often we've got lots of medications for diabetes or hypertension or um, COPD asthma that have combinations, have two, three different medications within the same tablet or device. And yeah, my clients love it. <laughs> it's some of those sort of really like, what's the expression when you pick a, a low piece of fruit, you know, <laughs> and they, yeah, and, and that builds rapport and trust. Yeah. So going back to the way I approach a a medication list is I like to perform what we call a best possible medication list. So what I do is I go through each medication. I ask the person, you know, about the history, when it started, what came first, why, you know, did you try something before this? Did it not work? Um, To really get a firm grasp of why that person is taking that particular medication. Often those conversations as well helps me realize which ones the patients think are really valuable too, because that's really important to know, because I'm not going to, let's just say they 
really love that particular hypoglycemic and they really feel that made a huge difference to their life. Well, even though that could potentially be deprescribed, it not, might not align with their values. So I'm not going to focus on that as much. So another thing that I look out for, uh, which happens probably more commonly than we give credit to, is looking at things like prescribing cascades. So looking where one medication is started because of a side effect of another medication. So a common example we've got is amlodipine, the calcium channel blocker. It's, it's super common. We see it every day in our practice. But out of all the calcium channel blockers, that one actually causes more reflux than something like lurconidipine and it actually causes you know, lots slower urinary tract symptoms than lurconidipine. And if someone's complaining of, of either of those sort of side effects, well, it could be as simple as changing the medication to get rid of another medication that's being used to treat a side effect. Yeah, a really important factor. And I think that's really important as well. What you're talking about the whole way through is that, you know, importance of bringing it back to the patient in front of you, really thinking about what their values are. I know when I do um, some medical education, when I'm talking to GP registrars or GPs in training, encouraging them to, to actually get the patient to bring all the medicines they're taking into an appointment. So you can actually just have a look at it. What have they actually got at home? Are they doubling up on things? Have they got different, you know, brands or, you know, different strengths or, you know, I mean, is there any confusion there? Because sometimes what's on the screen in front of us is not always what's happening at home. And you would see that, I'm sure, a lot when you do your yes. um, medication reviews in the home. <laughs> um, can you give us some of your practical tips that we can utilize in the clinic? Yeah. So look, every time a medication is reviewed, I think that's a potential opportunity for deprescribing. Looking at those things that I mentioned before, does it align with the patient's goals? Is it meeting therapeutic need? That type of thing. I was looking up some other stats last night and there's research that says 85 to 90% of people are interested in decreasing the amount of medications they take if possible. So sometimes it can be, I guess, a bit confronting, you know, having that discussion with a patient because sometimes the act of removing a medication can be seen as the act of removing care. It's hard to see how it can be interpreted like that. And that's why that deprescribing conversation sometimes doesn't actually start because of those fears. And, and that's completely valid. But I think the fact that 85 to 90% of people are interested should sort of encourage and empower us to start that conversation. And even if it doesn't happen at this particular appointment, you know, it's planting those seeds and thinking about what might be suitable for that patient in the future. I guess situations should also prompt us to think about deprescribing. So if your patient's had a fall, and especially if they can't remember why they've had that fall, particularly in older Australians, or a side effect, even something as simple as constipation or anything that the patient is really concerned about. Some diagnoses like end-stage diseases or severe dementia should also prompt those. Um, it is really prime time to, to prompt those conversations. And that doesn't necessarily have to be for patients just in aged care facilities, also those residing at home. I think it's really important to start those conversations early. When I look at the potential for deprescribing a person's medication, the way I approach every situation or every medication is like this. So I check, is there a current indication? Because sometimes it could have been started 20 years ago and that issue is no longer relevant and it's been not missed, but I guess it hasn't been focused on until this point in time. Is there a current therapeutic impact? So is it actually doing the job it was prescribed to do? Are there any side effects? 
patients are very, very open to de-prescribing medications if they're causing side effects. So that's a, a really nice, easy one to focus on. If there's a double up in another medication, uh, and this can often happen when you've got different specialists, GPs, cardiologists, whoever prescribing similar medications, same class, and the patient doesn't have that uh, health literacy to realize that they're actually the same thing. Is there actually a better medication on the market? Is there something that could benefit the person greater than their current medication? So potentially you might not see that as de-prescribing, but swapping to another medication could be an appropriate decision here. And I guess the most important question, is the patient still happy to continue taking these medications? We, we also need to remember when we're looking at de-prescribing a medication that some can be stopped immediately, um, while others we should really wean because of side effects or, or re-round action. Because I find in my experience where a potential medication that should have been even something as simple as a proton pump inhibitor, they've been on isomeprazole 40 for a million years and they're finally ready to start cutting down because they aren't experiencing reflux anymore. In my experience, I've had patients that have just decided to stop it. Well, naturally, they're going to get rebound reflux, but unfortunately now they're not as open to the idea of de-prescribing because they had all these issues trying to de-prescribe last time. So it's really taking that time to identify medications like PPIs, opioids, they're just a few off the top of my head that really need to be taken down slowly to have the best chance of de-prescribing success. And I talk about this openly with my patients. I say, we've got to take a slow and steady, and that's going to ensure that we get the best results out of this de-prescribing activity. There are also heaps of tools out there to help aid in de-prescribing. One of our pharmacists and hopefully GP favorites, the de-prescribing guidelines produced by, uh, I think it's the Primary Health Network in Tasmania. So they've got about 20 or so different really common medications that we look at de-prescribing, particularly in older age. And the guidelines are absolutely wonderful. Like they have these visual diagrams of weighing up the risks and benefits and determining whether or not that patient fits into which profile and, and whether or not you really should be focusing on those medications. And, it, and it's a step-by-step, even almost a hand-holding process, which I know, you know, if we're not used to de-prescribing or we're not used to de-prescribing that particular medication or your predecessor has started that medication, which I can understand would be quite daunting to sort of think, all right, they started it for a reason. Am I doing the right thing stopping it? So these sort of tools are, are really wonderful. There's some great sort of organisations like ADEM, the Australian Deprescribing Network, which is made up of clinicians, academics, consumers, which really focus on those sorts of guidelines as well. And they also do lots of educational sessions on deprescribing. And then there are actual practical tools. So there's a few, like this one called Ceased and one called Arrays, which are purely for GPs or clinicians to help guide through whether or not medications are appropriate for de-prescribing. And then there are tools like what pharmacists use, such as like the Beers criteria, which is inappropriate medications for people aged over 65, or the Drugs Burden Index, the DBI calculator, which sort of calculates anticholinergic and sedative burden. And that also helps to sort of reinforce reasons for de-prescribing. So yeah, de-prescribing is a huge topic. <laughs> Clearly. And we might even try and link to some of those in the show notes as well. Yep. I did want to get a chance to talk about medication reviews as well. Um, you've mentioned this during the episode today a couple of times. I just wanted to, you know, for you to give us a little bit more of a summary of what actually HMRs are and, you know, who can benefit from them. Yeah, I am a huge HMR advocate, not just because it's 
my job, but also because I do see the benefits and what the patients really get out of them. But essentially, a home medication review is a federally funded program. So there's no out-of-pocket costs to the consumer. And we get pharmacists who are accredited, so have done an extra postgraduate study, receive home medication reviews from a patient's normal GP. So reasons that someone might need a medication review, polypharmacy, that's actually probably the most common reason for referral. Uh, GPs, practice nurses, chronic disease nurses look at medication lists and think, whoa, you know, all right, we need to just sort of really sort out what's going on here. And as you mentioned, I get so many referrals from registrars or GPs who are new to the town who have inherited patients and really want to know why this person's taking this medication and, and is it needed and, and what's going on and is that list even what they're taking at home type of thing. Cognitive issues or suspected or known cognitive issues is a great reason for a referral. Whether or not medications are actually doing what they're supposed to, you know, you started that inhaler for COPD but their breathing doesn't hasn't seemed to improve even though you've you know you've gone up the stepwise process and they're on maximum therapy like what's going on here is it perhaps a device issue is it a technique issue and that's the beauty of a medication review because they occur in somebody's home we go and we see all of their medications how they're stored you know we, we sh- I get people to demonstrate how they use their puffers you know, I assess their dexterity, all those type of things. And I think you mentioned earlier in the show, you know, you quite often get patients to bring their medicines in to see you. While that's a a wonderful idea, and because I have also worked in a GP practice as an embedded pharmacist, so I've done that sort of thing in clinic. 99% of the time that I ask people to do that, they will invariably leave something at home, not because they don't want to tell you about it, but because perhaps they don't think their puffers are medication or they don't think vitamin D is important. So being in a person's home and I like to go through their cupboards, like we go through it all. I sometimes go out with bags of expired medications to go dispose of. Like, a, you know, pharmacists really enjoy that sort of thing. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but it's ours. <laughs> and just sometimes even giving patient a bit more educational confidence to manage their medications. Um, you know, quite often I'll go in with a web stack because potentially they might not be managing remembering to take things three times a day or like a little dose setback and see how if people are able to just pack their own medications like to come up with techniques to just yeah confidence I think is really what it's all about just getting people to not worry about their medicines not let medicines impact on their life just let it be part of their life but not change their life if that makes sense Oh, Deb, I think that's a really lovely way to end it. It's probably all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me on The Good GP. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of the Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.